Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. As we open up God's Word this morning, perhaps this week has been uh, a trying week for you. Perhaps your anxiety um, has increased a little bit, or perhaps you've thoroughly enjoyed this week, as we mentioned last week, with the introverts enjoying this particular time. But depending on how much news and social media you consumed this past week, probably has a direct correlation with the amount of anxiety that you're experiencing. Some of you um, haven't watched much news at all. You haven't been on Instagram or Facebook at all. And so you really have not much of an idea of what's going on. You know that there's a virus out there somewhere. You know that you're not going to work because of it. Uh, But the level uh, of anxiety that you could experience isn't as high because you've purposely set aside uh, those media outlets. And that's probably a good thing. A little bit less time in media, a little bit more time in the Word of God never hurts. But this past week, someone shared an article on Facebook this week. Uh, It's written by a lady by the name of Becky Thompson. She's a blogger. Um, The link directly to this article is in the the notes section or the comments section below. Uh, But she wrote an article entitled, For Those Who Feel Afraid Right Now. And I forwarded it right over to my wife because it was such an encouragement to me. And because it's such an encouragement, I want to read a portion of that. And what's going on here in this article is she's having a conversation between herself and God, uh, really just just struggling with this fear uh, regarding this coronavirus. And this is how it goes. Okay, God, here's the thing. I'm scared right now. I'm not trying to be, but I am. I know. You want to talk about it? Uh, Do we need to? I mean, you already know. Let's talk about it anyway. We've done this before. I know. I just feel like I should be bigger or stronger by now. God, waiting patiently, unhurried, undistracted, never annoyed, continues to listen. She cries out, Okay, so I'm afraid I'll do everything I can to protect my family but it won't be enough. I'm afraid of someone I love dying. I'm afraid the world won't go back to where it was before. I'm afraid my life is always going to feel a little bit unsettled. Anything else? Everything else. God says, remember how your son woke up the other night and he came running down the hall to see your bedroom? Yes. You were still awake. So when you heard him running, you started calling out to him before he ever got to you. Remember? Do you remember what you called out to him? I said, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. Why did you call out to him? Why didn't you just wait for him to get to your room? Because I wanted him to know that I was awake, and I heard him, and he didn't have to be afraid until he reached the end of the dark hallway. Exactly. I hear you, daughter. I hear your thoughts racing like feet down the dark hallway. There's another side to all of this. I'm already there. I've seen the end of it, and I want you to know right now as you walk down all of it, you're okay. I haven't gone to sleep, and I won't. This morning, God has sovereignly ordained our next subject that we're going to talk about in the book of Romans to be on this subject of, of faith. In the midst of when our nation and our world, for that matter, so desperately needs it. Out of all the passages we have studied in Romans so far, this one perhaps is is my most favorite passage as it talks about this hope that we have because of Christ. This final section of Romans 4 speaks to the type of faith that Abraham had in God 
that declared him righteous before the eyes of God. But that's not my favorite part, although that's extremely glorious about this whole subject of the gospel. My favorite part about these verses is the sufficiency of the object in whom we place our faith in. And we know that to be God, the eternal almighty God of this universe, the one that is powerful enough to conquer kingdoms and heal nations is one that is personal enough to develop an intimate relationship with you and me. That's the type of God that we're going to be talking about this morning. That's the type of God that is screamed upon the pages of the gospel. And so if you have your Bibles, if you would take them with me to Romans chapter 4 this morning. Romans chapter 4. We're going to be looking at, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this last section of the book of Romans. As I get there, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, the book of Romans is a book that was written by the Apostle Paul specifically to the Church of Rome to describe the implications of the gospel. As we've been talking about time and time again, the uh, church was new at this particular point. Jesus Christ had risen from the dead not too many years prior to this particular passage. And so the church as a whole did not have a clear presentation of the gospel written down by an apostle. And so this is really the first document that the church had to describe the implications of the gospel. Beginning in Romans chapter 1, verses 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, we discussed that that is is specifically talking about God's judgment upon sinful mankind. See, Paul had to paint the picture for man's need of the gospel before he could ever give the full implications of the gospel. He had to help man understand their need for saving before he could ever tell them how they could be saved. And so he does that in the first two chapters. Really, the first two and a half, almost three chapters. As we move into the last portion of Romans chapter 3, specifically beginning in verse 21, the Apostle Paul introduces the gospel for the first time in this book. And so we've been studying specifically chapter 4. Again, understanding the audience that the Apostle Paul is writing to. He's writing to both the Gentiles who were completely immoral. They were completely uh, irreligious. They had... uh, no quantums for religion at all whatsoever. He was also writing to Jews who were trusting in their religion for salvation, as well as Gentiles who'd become uh, Jewish sympathizers, had converted to Judaism, and they were really basing their salvation upon their own moral their own morality, their own moral decisions, and their own religion as well. And so the Apostle Paul had to help the people understand, listen, it's not about your knowledge of the Word of God. It's not about your keeping of the law. It's not about your religion or your external conformity to religion that will declare you righteous before the eyes of God. It's all 100% solely based upon the faith in God and God alone. And so really the first section of chapter 4, he talks about using Abraham and David in the first section of chapter 4 as an example to explain that salvation is only obtained through faith and faith alone. It's not uh, the act of circumcision that we looked at last week, which is really an external right, an external uh, uh, example of religion. That doesn't make someone righteous, even though... It's really just an indicator of someone that has made a choice to follow Christ, but that in and of itself does not make someone righteous. Neither does, neither does the keeping of the law. The law is not sufficient enough to make someone righteous. As he concludes and really brings down to this last part of the chapter here, 
What we see here, beginning in verses 16 and 17, is really just this introduction to uh, the, the last phrase that he's going to speak on regarding the trust that we ought to have in the gospel because of the work of Christ. And so if you look down with me, we're going to be focusing on verses 16 down to verse 25. I know we read verse 16 last week. We studied that, but we're going to be using verse 16 as really an introduction to this final section here. And this is what the word of the Lord says. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end of the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness, Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also. To whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who is delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So far in this chapter... What we have observed is the inefficiency of works to declare us righteous. As I mentioned just a few moments ago, we discover the weakness of external religion to justify us before the eyes of God. As we conclude our study this morning in Romans chapter 4, we are reminded that the true and only source that our justification is established is through the divine power of God. Abraham did not trust in his religion. He did not trust in his human efforts. He trusted in the divine power of God. And it was in that type of trust that Abraham was made righteous. The title of the message this morning is Justification Only Comes Through Divine Power. In verses 16 and 17, what we really see, as I had mentioned earlier, is an introduction to this final section. As we observed last week, in verse 16, Paul gives this description in which the gift of salvation is delivered. He says it's delivered by grace. In fact, the only way that God could guarantee that mankind could become the seeds of Abraham, the, the, uh, and inherit the spiritual blessing that Abraham was promised, was through the grace of God. We cannot, in our own sin, in and of ourselves, earn any right The only way that God could guarantee it is by offering it through grace as a gift for those that believe. If the promise was dependent upon man's ability to earn the gift, then God could not guarantee the fulfillment of the promise. Salvation is obtained only through faith, and it is delivered by grace. Grace is receiving something that we do not deserve. No one, myself for sure, no one that has ever lived deserves a relationship with God. Our sin has made us completely 100% depraved. We cannot honor God in and of ourselves. We can only do it through the power of the gospel. But no one deserves that relationship. A helpful way to remember this, this, uh, this, this word grace is, is through the phrase, God riches at Christ's expense. I shared that with us last week. We accept the gift by faith because the gift is so precious and so valuable that we cannot do anything to earn it. 
We accept it by faith because it rests on grace. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, it states, But the scripture hath concluded, all are under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. In verse 17, Paul describes this object in whom Abraham places his trust in. As we mentioned before, one's faith in something or someone is only as valid as the object in which they place their faith in. For example, if I trust in a broken chair to hold me up, I can have all the faith in the world that that broken chair is going to hold me up, but the facts still remain that chair is broken. And so whether I believe it to hold me up or not does not uh, uh, support the fact that it's broken and it won't. So our faith in God or our faith in anything for that matter is only as valid as the object in which we place our faith in. So in verse 17, Paul describes the sufficiency of God in whom Abraham places trust in, which in return is validated or validated the very trust of Abraham for saving faith. Paul says, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as they were. This is the saving power of God. The only thing that God has or the, the only power that's powerful enough to save mankind is the power of God. Only God is the one that is powerful enough to take a broken sinner and restore their relationship with himself. Only God is powerful and sufficient enough to restore man. But since Abraham placed his faith in the one and only true God and in him alone, he was counted righteous. And as we progress here in verses 18 through 25, it describes both the type of trust that Abraham possessed that counted him or declared him righteous, as well as the type of trust that a person must possess in order to be declared righteous. And so if you're taking notes this morning, and, and again, I had uh, put that in the comments section or at least a link to get those notes. The first point that we can look at here this morning is the trust of Abraham for righteousness. The trust of Abraham for righteousness. When it comes to saving faith, we emphasize that genuine faith in God for righteousness is faith in God and God alone. Not faith in God plus something else. Faith in God and God alone. It is not sufficient enough to simply believe in God, but to actually align your life with the very promises of God. It is giving your life completely and 100% over to God. In verses 18 through 22, we see three different ways in which Abraham trusted in God and that in return declared him righteous. First off, we see this. Abraham trusted in the power of God's promise. He trusted in the power of God's promise. Look at verse 18. Who, I love this phrase, who against hope believed in hope. When God's word was against all odds, Abraham believed. When God's word was against all odds, Abraham believed. When God's promise to Abraham seemed completely impossible from a human perspective, Abraham believed. Abraham did not let fear of doubt, the fear of man, the fear of logic prevent him from placing his faith in God. What promise was this that, that Abraham was trusting in? In verse 18, it says that he might become the father of many nations. This is what we've been talking about this entire chapter. Abraham placed his faith and trust in what God said regarding him, Abraham, becoming the father of many nations. Now, becoming the father of, of many nations was pretty staggering in and of itself. Abraham was a nobody. Abraham was a man that did not come from a, a pretty uh, distinguished background. Matter of fact, Abraham's father was an idol maker. He was an idolater. He didn't even serve the God of Israel. He didn't even serve our God. Abraham did not come from a Christian heritage. 
But God told Abraham, you are going to be the father of many nations. So the mere fact that God would even choose Abraham to follow through with that calling was a miracle in and of itself. But that is not the most staggering aspect of this promise that God made to Abraham. It's this in verse 19. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. This is where the miracle happens. Abraham, many believe, was between 75 and 100 years old when he got this call from God. Well past the ability to to be able to uh, have children, to be able to father children. Sarah never had a child of her own. So there was obviously something in the biological makeup of both Sarah, either Sarah or Abraham, that prevented them from having children of their own. Well, we understand uh, that with Abraham, there wasn't anything wrong with him biologically because out of a lack of faith, Sarah told Abraham to go and have a relationship with another woman. And out of that relationship, we have another son that was born to Abraham. And so there was something biologically wrong with Sarah that prevented her the ability to be able to have Children. Now, this day and age, 2020, um, it is it is a little bit different. People view uh, women differently if they choose not to have children. Uh, that is ultimately for a Christian wife. That's between them and God and their husband. Obviously, they make that decision. And if it's if it's out of selfishness, they need to reevaluate that decision. But ultimately, the decision to have children is between them and God. But in this particular time period, it was looked at as a blessing, and it still is a blessing to have children. But it was looked at as really more of a status symbol when a woman was able to have children. When a woman could not have a child, whether they choose, chose to have a child or not, they were looked at in society as not being as blessed by God as other women. So really, the Bible doesn't tell us, but there was probably a lifelong struggle with Sarah and the fact that she was not able to physically deliver children. And so the fact that God told Abraham that you're going to be a father of many nations was a huge miracle, but that was not the most staggering promise. It was the fact that God told Abraham that he was going to physically uh, uh, deliver or, or at least father a child through his wife who was not biologically even able to have children. That is where the tremendous miracle occurs. That is where the level of faith with Abraham that he had to possess uh, became real. God did not bless them with children, so there must have been something wrong in Sarah's biological design that did not allow her to have children. But in the promise of God, God said that you will be the father of many nations. You just therefore must trust me that my promise will come to fruition. So imagine just with me for a moment the shock that Abraham must have experienced when God promised him that Sarah not only a woman that was not biologically able to have children, a woman that was well past her childbearing years, a woman that was pushing 100 years old, was going to deliver a child. We see in verse 19 that Abraham trusted and the power of God's promise, his power, God's power to to, uh, resurrect that which is dead. In other words, Sarah's womb being dead, God had the power to resurrect that and bring life through their son, Isaac. There are many today that never accept Christ as their Savior because they believe that God is not powerful enough to save them. They somehow have figured out that the almighty, all-powerful creator of the universe is somehow incapable of restoring their own broken life. Perhaps you have heard the excuse before, God could never save me. You don't know what I've done. 
there's a lack of trust and faith in the almighty power of God to change your life. But what about you, Christian? You've obviously trusted in the power of God to save you, but yet what are you holding back and trusting God in your life right now? God, I don't believe you're powerful enough to fix my marriage. I don't believe you're powerful enough to help me conquer this stronghold in my life. What are you not trusting in regarding the power of God? Abraham, against all hope, believed in hope. Abraham believed in the power of God. Not only did Abraham trust in the power of God, let it be Abraham trusted in the priority of God's promise. In verse 20, it says, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. The phrase that I want to draw our attention to on this verse is giving glory to God. As I mentioned earlier, Abraham was the son of an idol maker. He lived in a society where idol worship was rampant, but Abraham decided to go a different path. Abraham decided to give glory to God alone because Abraham trusted in God alone. We glorify that which we place our priority in. If our work is our priority, then our work receives our glory. If our looks are our priority, then our looks receive glory. Everything that we place our priority in receives glory. The fact that Abraham gloried in God and God alone meant that Abraham placed God as number one priority in his life. To glorify God means to recognize and acknowledge God's presence and power. What we learn from Abraham is this. There's such an acknowledgement involved that goes beyond evidence that appears to appoint someone else to another way. Abraham, despite knowing full well what he and Sarah could not do, recognized what God can do through his power. We glorify God, that we are placing God as number one priority in our life, saving faith. The type of faith that results in salvation is the belief that God is the only one that ought to receive our glory, honor, and praise. It's God and God alone. But notice the wording in verse 20. It says, Abraham did not stagger. I, lo- I love that phrasing there. I think of somebody that's, that's stepping back, that's tripping over. He did not stagger at the promise of God, but was strong in faith. And because Abraham was strong in his faith in God, he brought glory to God. God is not glorified in our unbelief. I often wonder how much we limit ourselves because we fail to make God our number one priority in our life. As a Christian, we have the ability, due to the, our restored relationship, to bring glory to God. But we only bring glory to God when He is our number one priority. Where is God ranking in your life right now? Is He, is he number one? If you called upon him as your savior, God, I'm giving my life to you, then why do we not continuously make him our number one priority? I understand there's times in our life where things get busy. There's times in our life where distraction occurs. But if it's something that is distracting us from giving God the glory and from God being the number one priority in our life, then that distraction has a root in uh, idolatry from its very core. Idolatry is taking anything, anything that takes our attention away from God. Anything that we place above God is idolatry. Abraham trusted in the priority of God and made God his number one in his life and therefore gave God glory. As we observed in the previous two sections, faith plus works does not equal salvation. Faith plus religion does not equal salvation. Faith plus nothing equals salvation, and that is the only type of faith that bring glory to God. 
Abraham trusted in the power of God's promise. He trusted in the priority of God's promise, meaning his faith in God and God alone was the only type of faith that brought God glory. And let her see, Abraham trusted in the fulfillment of God's promise. Look at verse 21. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Abraham, and this is all caps, write this in your Bible, was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to accomplish. What an awesome truth. Abraham was fully convinced that what God promised, he was physically able to accomplish. Even though this promise from God was a biological impossibility, Abraham was fully convinced that he would become a father because he believed that God was powerful enough to fulfill every single promise that he makes. When it comes to saving faith, we are fully convinced that God will fulfill his promise to complete his sanctifying work in us. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. This verse speaks on the subject of sanctification, which is really this process of becoming more like Christ. The phrase, which begun, that Paul refers to in Philippians 1.6 is the moment in which we receive Christ as our Savior. There's three different levels of sanctification. You have positional sanctification. That's the moment... The, the which begun that Paul says here, that's the moment that we receive Christ. Now we are positionally sanctified. We have been redeemed. We have been uh, declared righteous. We have been justified because of our faith of what in Christ has done for us. Our faith in what Christ has done, the completed work of Christ. That is positional sanctification. We are now righteous. And then after positional sanctification, you have what is known as progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is the moment of after we receive Christ to the moment that we physically die here on earth, that is the, that is the, active, um, uh, the active work of becoming more like Christ every single day. We become more sensitive to our sin. We become stronger in our faith. That is progressive sanctification. And then complete or ultimate sanctification will not occur here on earth, but it occurs the moment that we step into heaven. Then we receive our glorified state. That is complete, ultimate sanctification. Paul continues in verse 6 by stating um, that the work that God begins in salvation will continue until his completion. Progressive sanctification is this process of becoming more like Christ. All of this is a promise of fulfillment. And just like Abraham, we can trust that the work of God begins at the moment of our salvation and will come to completion once we step into glory after our physical departure here from earth. Abraham trusted in the fulfillment of God's promise. So what was this type of faith that Abraham possessed that counted him unto righteousness? Abraham trusted the power of God to complete his promise to Abraham. Abraham trusted in the priority of God and making him the only one that he glorified and that he actually did place his trust in. And Abraham trusted that everything that God said he would do. He would do indeed, and so we must emulate this same type of trust when it comes to receiving the gospel. When it comes to the gospel, we are trusting in the fact that God is powerful enough to redeem us. We are trusting in the fact that God promises 
to, 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 to bring us to be more like Christ. We trust in the fact that God promises to receive us if we call upon him in faith. He will never cast us away. We trust in the power of God to resurrect our sinful state, to resurrect our spirit, and to rejuvenate our hearts to be more like Christ. We trust in God and God alone. This is the type of faith that Abraham emulated. But as we could transition to verses 23 through 25, we see the availability of this faith for all of mankind, which brings us to our second point, the trust of all for righteousness. The trust of all for righteousness. We notice so far that Paul likes to repeat important concepts in order for his listeners to get the point. There have been a few different times in which Paul stresses this opportunity for everyone, not just Abraham, to receive the blessing of becoming the heirs of God. As we saw last week, God made a promise to Abraham in verse 13, but the benefit of that promise not only affected Abraham, it affected the seed, which is one unit, those that are followers of Christ, of Abraham as well, specifically speaking to the spiritual seeds of Abraham. In verses 23 through 25, Paul continues this method of repeating in order to stress his point by describing the benefit of the gospel that is offered to all who believe. And the first thing that we see here in letter A is the availability of God's promise. Look down at verse 23, and uh, we're going to look at the first part of verse 24 as well. It says, now it was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him. In other words, imputed meaning uh, the the righteousness that God possesses, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, uh, it is imputed. In other words, it is placed upon us at the moment of salvation so that in the eyes of God, we are looked at as being righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. In verse 24, just the first part, it says, it was not only imputed for his sake alone, but for us also. Little did Moses know that when he wrote Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when it says, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted unto him for righteousness, he was writing not only regarding Abraham, but for others as well. And there's a much greater resurrection on the horizon of history than the resurrection of human reproduction in Abraham and Sarah's bodies. But what God did for them was only a picture of what he was going to do for the entire human race. The outcome of faith would be the same. Justification in God's sight. But the demonstration of God's power would be different. In fact, the demonstration of power that God gives the world to believe in today is the greatest display of power that the world has ever seen. Going back to the particular example of Abraham as we've been studying here, there are so many different parallels between the specific faith situation in which Abraham was faced with and the faith situation in which we are faced with in the world today. Going back to verse 19, Paul says that Abraham knew that his body as well as Sarah's womb were dead. This is in reference, as we mentioned earlier, to both their abilities to be able to uh, reproduce or to be able to uh, parent a child physically. But even in their dead state, Abraham had faith in God's power to resurrect, as what 17 says, verse 17, that which is dead. So we think about it from a spiritual sense. When it comes to the world, God knows that each person is dead in their sins. Therefore, they are unable to help themselves. This is what we mean by total depravity. As long as the sinner thinks he is strong enough to do anything to please God, he cannot be saved by grace because therefore it would not be grace. It was not until Abraham admitted 
that he was dead, that God's power went to work in Abraham's body. So with that being said, even though this gift of righteousness has been made available to all, it is only those that are dead in their sin that they admit that they cannot save themselves and they call upon Christ to be their Savior. Which brings us to our next point here, letter B, and that's the acceptance of God's promise. We've said this over and over again. The gospel has been made available to the world, but it only benefits those whom believe. Look at the middle part of verse 24. Three words there, if we believe. Verse 24, the first part of it, it says, But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him. All Abraham had was the promise of God that he would be the father of many nations. Yet he believed this promise. He gave the glory to God and he received the blessing. What a perfect illustration of this miracle of salvation. As long as people depend upon the flesh and they feel that they have enough strength to please God, they will never be justified. But when we come to the end of ourselves, we admit that we are dead and we cease to strive in our own efforts, then is God able to raise us from the dead and give us new life and a perfect standing before him? It was Abraham's simple faith in God's word that justify him, and that is how sinners are justified today. It is through the simple faith in God. The key to our justification is our belief. There are over 60 references to faith or unbelief in Romans alone. God's saving power is experienced by those who believe in Christ, Romans 1.16. His righteousness is given to those who believe, Romans 3.22. We are justified by faith, Romans 5.1. God does not want anyone to die without a relationship with himself. We see that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering. In other words, he is patient towards us in our sin, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why has God not allowed you or other sinners to die yet? Why has God not allowed the coronavirus to kill the world yet, to ultimately destroy the world yet? Why are we still living Because God and his long-suffering is continuously developing and lavishing this grace upon mankind so that they would respond to him in faith. All what we have, everything that we have in this world, the fact that we are still breathing is because of the grace of God. We don't deserve any of this. But God in his long-suffering is waiting for those to believe on him. The gospel has been made available to everyone. Most people have access to a Bible. Most people can go online or they can visit a church and they can hear the gospel being presented as I'm presenting it to you today. There are many churches that have access in preaching the gospel. But here's the facts. Only those that respond through faith will receive the benefits and the blessings of the gospel. I used this illustration in the past. Let's say, uh, let's, let's just imagine all of us on a boat for just a moment here. The boat begins to sink and begins to go down, and you know that there's no way that you're going to survive on this sinking boat. And so everybody swims off the boat. The life raft is inflated, and so the life raft is sitting there, and there's, there's people that get on that life raft, but others are still out there, and they're swimming around. And so they take those lifesavers, and they toss them out to the people. Every single person, uh, there's a lifesaver out there for every person, but only those that grab onto that lifesaver in faith, believing that lifesaver to save them will be the ones that actually benefit uh, the, the blessing of being rescued from drowning. 
The gospel has been out there. It's presented. Everybody has access. Pretty much just about every single person has access to a Bible. They can read it. But the facts are the same. Only those that believe in the gospel, only those that trust in it for themselves, are ones that will receive that blessing. They are the ones that are Christian, which, which are ultimately the elect of God. The Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Dr. Harry Ironside was the pastor of a famous, famous Moody church in Chicago for 18 years. He tells this story of an interaction that occurred while he was visiting a particular Sunday school class in one of his travels. One day, the teacher asked, how were people saved in the Old Testament? After a pause, one man replied, by keeping the law. The teacher said, that's right. But Ironside interrupted and says, My Bible says that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. The teacher was a bit embarrassed, and so he said, Well, does somebody else have an answer or an idea of how people in the Old Testament were saved? Another student replied, They were saved by bringing sacrifices to God. The teacher said, Yes, that's right. They tried to go on with the lesson, but once again, Dr. Ironside interrupted and said, My Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. By this time, the unprepared teacher, who was sure the visitor knew more than the Bible uh, teacher himself, said, Well, you tell us then how people in the Old Testament were saved since you seem to be so knowledgeable. Dr. Ironside explained that they were saved by faith. The same way people are saved today. 21 times in Hebrews 11, you find the same words by faith. So, of course, the gospel is presented, but it only benefits those who respond in faith. It is not our job as Christians to try to figure out who's going to get saved and who isn't, because ultimately God knows that answer. Our job as Christians is to live Christ, is to live the church. We are the church. You've heard this phrase uh, given before. We emulate the gospel. We share the gospel with others by sharing the love of Christ. And we pray for those to receive the gospel. But here's the facts. I cannot save you. Those that want to receive the benefit of the gospel must believe. Which brings us into our final point here this morning. The foundation of the belief regarding God's promise. We've seen the last part of verse 24. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, verse 25, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Once again, the object of our belief is only as valid as the object itself. The previous part of this chapter makes it clear that the belief in human effort and religion will do nothing for justification. The only way in which we are justified is through the saving power of Jesus Christ. In verse 25, the Bible says that Jesus had to die in order for the penalty of our sins to be paid. And he was resurrected so that we could have the power to be justified. As we close this morning and, and you're viewing, perhaps some of you are viewing a message from our church for the first time. I have a question for you. The reason why we exist as a church is because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The local church was not established until Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. If Jesus Christ died on the cross for us and never resurrected from the dead, we would have no hope. There would be no purpose for church. And so with that being said, in all things that we do, that we strive to do, we want to bring glory to God and God alone. 
But we would be failing as a body of believers by not giving you the opportunity to be able to respond to the gospel. God may be working in your heart this morning. We understand that nobody can come into the gospel unless God first uh, works. God draws all men to himself. But here's the thing. It's been given to you by grace. All you have to do is believe in the good news of the gospel. What, what, What is the gospel? Well, first off, it's realizing that you are a sinner. It's realizing that you, me, I mean, this is not me saying you're a sinner. I'm not. We all are sinners. My wife knows how much of a sinner I am. We all are sinners. Every single person that's ever lived other than Jesus Christ falls short of the glory of God. And it's because of our sin that our relationship with God has been severed that we are on our pathway to hell. And there's nothing we can do about it in and of ourselves. But God made a way for us to restore our relationship, and that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God's son, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for us because there had to have been a sacrifice that needed to be paid in order for us to receive this righteousness. And Jesus, living a perfect life, did that by dying on the cross for us. So everything that needed to be done was done through Jesus Christ. It's not about our works. It's not about our religion. It's not about... Uh, uh, our knowledge when it comes to the word of God, all those things mean nothing when it comes to our righteousness. All we have to do as Christians is call upon God, repent of our sin. In other words, we turn away from our old lifestyle and return to God and we give him our life. It is that simple. So my question here this morning is, have you done that? If you've never done that and you feel God working in your heart, would you just believe, a call upon God, believe him to be the only solution for you and for your sin? Repent of your sin. Turn your life away from the sin that you're living in and turn to God and and give your faith fully and 100% upon him and him alone. That is the only means for salvation.